Welcome to the podcast on Sources of the Reign of Robert I and the Anglo-Scottish Wars of Independence. This is a podcast produced by the Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded project, The Community of the Realm in Scotland, 1249-1424, History, Law and Charters in a Recreated Kingdom. The project team is made up of historians from the universities of Edinburgh, Glasgow and King's College London, and is recorded in the King's online studio at King's College London. Each week we take one of the important sources from the reign of Robert Bruce, King of Scots from 1306 to 1329, and explain what that source is, how it survives, and why it matters. I'm Alice Taylor, reader in medieval history, and this week Matthew Hammond, research associate on the Community of the Realm in Scotland project, will be taking a look at Arbroath Abbey. Matthew, one of the most pivotal sources for Robert's political expression of his power and authority in King is the famous document now known as the Declaration of Arbroath, which will be 700 years old next April. Why is it called the Declaration of Arbroath? It came to acquire that name because it was dated, quote, at the Monastery of Arbroath in Scotland on the 6th of April, 1320. The Declaration of Arbroath was really a letter written to the Pope in the name of the nobles and barons and the whole community of the realm of Scotland, forcefully stating the case for Robert's legitimacy as king, and doing so in a quite rhetorically sophisticated way. David Bruin's podcast in this series delves into all this in greater depth. Anyway, later medieval Scottish historians were aware of the letter as an important encapsulation of the Scots' case for independence, and it was copied and read quite widely. The document wasn't called a declaration until about 1700, when James Anderson called it the Declaration of the Community of Scotland. Its identity as a capital D declaration was very much encouraged by the influence of the American Declaration of Independence of 1776, and um, there's been a lot of parallels drawn between Mm. these two historical documents. 19th century historians noted the letter's constitutional significance But the town of Arbroath itself had a big role in pushing to the forefront the letter's association with that place. This was in no small way due to an active historical pageant scene throughout the 20th century Mm. in which locals dressed as historical figures like King Robert, Abbot Bernard, and the various barons and acted out their impression of how the declaration would have been ceremoniously read out. And uh, you can actually learn a lot about this historical pageant scene in Arbroath by going to www.historicalpageants.ac.uk. So what you're saying is that basically the declaration's association with Arbroath, the declaration of Arbroath, has only grown with time. But where is Arbroath and why was the document dated there in the first place? Uh, Well, Arbroath is a fishing town on the North Sea on the east coast of the county of Angus, which is also sometimes called Forfarshire. And the town grew up in the Middle Ages around a very large and important abbey that was located mm. there. But Arbroath was actually not a place that was traditionally on the king's itinerary. So kings in the Middle Ages were constantly moving around. They were always on the move, going from town to town and dragging along a peripatetic troop of household officers, clerics, knights, servants, and so forth. Now, for the king of Scotland, the usual route was to go from Perth and Schoon on the Tay to Forfar and to Montrose and then north from there, bypassing the Angus seacoast and Arbroath. And before the reign of King Robert I, there were actually only four surviving royal charters that were dated at Arbroath. But then when you get to Robert's reign, 
There are no fewer than 65 of his charters, wow. about 15% of his charters mm. that were dated there. And there's a very clear reason why this was the case, and that's because Robert's chancellor was the abbot of Arbroath. His name was Bernard. And the chancellor was the royal officer who was in charge of the writing office. So it was because uh, Bernard was a very active chancellor that uh, so many of his charters were dated at the site of his home abbey. And it's actually very unusual for a chancellor to be an abbot because of the fact that by the nature of the job, the chancellor had to travel extensively with the mm. king. And usually an abbot of a major monastery had a full-time job <laughs> requiring his presence there at the abbey. So I think Bernard must have been a very resourceful figure to pull that off. <laughs> so... Charters were sometimes dated at our birth, and from what you said, Robert was particularly keen on doing so because, and also his chancellor was the abbot of the place. But the declaration's not a royal charter, is it? That's true. It was, as I said, actually a letter to the Pope in the name of the barons and the community of the realm. But even though it wasn't in the name of the king, historians recognize that its composition was the product of the king's in-house publicity team, mm. some would even say propaganda arm, rather than some kind of a spontaneous or organic outpouring of support from the barons. So how did that come about? Well, we know from a chance charter survival that there was a council that was held at New Battle Abbey, uh, which is just south of Edinburgh, on the 14th of March, 1320, so about three weeks previous. And it's attended by a number of the same men who are listed in the Declaration of Arbroath. Uh, historians like Archie Duncan have argued persuasively that the text was um, sort of agreed at the council at New Battle. And then Abbot Bernard uh, took this off to Arbroath Abbey, along with the seal matrixes of the barons. What are seal matrices? So medieval charters had wax seals mm. attached to them, and each baron or bishop or abbot or king would have their own individual wax seal. And the matrix is the metal crucible that you put wax in, and it would be a two-sided thing. You would sort of screw it together, let mm. the wax harden. And the reason we know that he took the matrixes and not the, just the seals is that they seem to all be made with the same wax. Mm. Um, so he probably... Uh, did them all in a row. <laughs> did it at the same time as the as the letter was, was written out on the 6th of April. That's interesting. Interestingly, the king himself was often barrack upon Tweed, which is a, a borough that he had recently retaken from the English. But Bernard stated our broth through April and May with the king's great seal, issuing various charters, which seemed to have been business that was also agreed at this council and new battle. Mm. So let's take a step back and concentrate on the history of Arbroath Abbey itself. How and when did it come into being? Okay, so Arbroath Abbey was founded about a century and a half before the Declaration of Arbroath. And it was founded by King William the Lion, who uh, reigned for nearly 50 years, from 1165 to 1214. That was a long time. Yeah. <laughs> he made it up to about 49 and a half years, I think. Yeah. I always thought it was sad that he didn't get the full half yeah, century. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Arbroath was a, uh, a daughter house of Kelso Abbey, which is one of the famous border abbeys, and it was set up in 1178. The Abbey Church of Arbroath was not 
dedicated until 1233, but the altar uh, and the choir end must have been finished by 1214 because King William was buried there mm. in front of the altar when he died in 1214. Did he found a lot of mon- monasteries? Uh, no. So unlike his grandfather, King David I, and his great-grandmother, uh, St. Margaret, William was not known as a particularly devout or pious man. William came to the throne at around the age of 23 and enjoyed masculine pursuits like going to tournaments and hunting. He sired several illegitimate children and did not marry until about the age of 44. That's pretty late. Uh, So he didn't seem to be in any hurry. And while his grandfather, King David, was famous for founding abbeys left, right, and center... Just the most famous of them would be Melrose, Kelso, and Holyrood. Arbroath was actually the only monastery that William founded, and there was a very specific context for why he did so. So in 1173, the son of King Henry II of England, who was also named Henry, decided to lead a rebellion to try to wrest the crown from his father. And the eager young King William of Scotland jumped into the fray and invaded Northumberland. Also because he was trying to get back Northumberland, which he had been Earl of as a child. But King Henry took this earldom away from him when William was about 15. And actually, William's whole life was kind of spent trying to regain this earldom of Northumberland. Unfortunately for William, he was captured at Annick and uh, taken to Falaise in Normandy, where he was forced to agree to a humiliating treaty. Now, all of this was taking place shortly after Henry's thuggish knights took it upon themselves to murder the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket. King Henry managed to evade responsibility for the murder, but the Pope canonized Thomas, making him a saint in 1173. And on the 12th of July, 1174, King Henry publicly performed penance at the tomb of Thomas Becket in Canterbury Cathedral. As luck would have it, the next day, King William was captured that at Annick. That is pretty lucky. And Henry was quick to make the most of this coincidence, uh, putting it out that St. Thomas was intervening on Henry's behalf. Mm. In the Middle Ages, um, it was widely held that saints were intercessors who could help one secure victory in battle and basically secure the welfare of the kingdom generally. So King William felt the need to get St. Thomas on his side and decided to build a huge new monastery dedicated to him. And it was in that way that the Abbey of St. Thomas of Arbroath came about. Mm. The king gave away vast swathes of land in Angus and the Mearns, and along with the control of 25 parish churches initially. Wow. And he leaned on his nobles to give generously as well. Later in his life, the king even gave control to Arbroath of the sacred reliquary of St. Columba, known as the Brechbenach, that the Scots army carried into battle. William placed all his bets on Arbroath and St. Thomas to secure the safety of his realm, and the abbey continued to prosper for the following century until the time of King Robert. Great. So what can we say then about Robert's relationship with Arbroath Abbey? Well, Abbot Bernard's position as the King's Chancellor certainly redounded to Arbroath's benefit. 
So, for example, in 1310, the king gave the abbey the confiscated goods of John Pollock, the king's enemy, which were found on the abbey's lands. And later the same year, the king wrote a letter forbidding the abbey from paying out pensions, which would burden uh, the house's revenues. Hmm. This must have all really (laughs) been coming from Abbot Bernard. He's really looking after his own as well. Yes. In that particular letter, the king even refers to the abbot and monks as his chaplains. Um, suggesting some kind of closer relationship with the house. And the king, or perhaps really Bernard, was not shy about issuing multiple letters and charters, uh, renewing the abbey's possessions, enforcing collections of debts, and giving other kinds of quite robust royal support. But the most interesting point about King Robert's relationship with Arbroath was his restarting the practice of donating 14 marks every year from the king's coffers for lighting the tomb of King William the Lion. And there's a marble effigy at Arbroath, which dates from this time. Unfortunately, the head is missing, but some scholars think that that is the effigy of William Mm. from this tomb. So this shows that Robert was very much interested in projecting his kingship in terms of the pre-war history of the Scottish kingdom. So kind of looking back to the 13th, 12th and 13th centuries and saying... I'm exactly in line with you guys. And this was actually a fairly challenging project because Edward I had taken away the most obvious symbols of Scottish kingship, the Stone of Schoon, where Scottish kings were inaugurated, and St. Margaret's relic of the Holy Cross, uh, known as the Holy Rood. So even though the lighting of King William's tomb at Arbroath seems like a small act, it was nevertheless part of this larger project of Robert's recreated kingdom. Mm, so he's kind of in, he's, he's inventing a tradition that kind of did already exist, but doing it in the absence of other things yes. to do, basically. That's very interesting. So, you know, you mentioned the Edwardian invasion. Um, and obviously a number of Scottish monasteries, such as Schoon Abbey, um, were heavily damaged in the course of the Wars of Independence. And was this also the case with Arbroath Abbey? Apparently not. Even though Arbroath Abbey had been damaged by a storm and a subsequent great fire in 1272, it seems to have been relatively unscathed during the phases of the war in which William Wallace and Robert the Bruce were active. Unfortunately, this would not be the case by the end of the 14th century. The English inflicted damage um, on Arbroath Abbey in 1350, and again in 1378 and 79. And the church was actually struck by lightning in 1380, which necessitated the re-letting of the choir roof. The abbey today is in uh, quite a fragmentary state, a condition which must be due to the townspeople quarrying it Mm. for building materials. Um, That's actually not an uncommon situation for medieval monasteries situated in towns. And uh, Arbroath's mother house of Kelso Abbey was uh, quarried in this way to an even greater Mm. extent. However, what does remain of Arbroath Abbey is impressive, especially the great west doorway, which had a large round window above it, and the arcading on the south transept. Also, the abbot's house is intact. So if you put this together, the ruins are quite substantial, and they give an excellent impression of the size of the medieval complex and the wealth and prestige of the monastery. So can the public visit Arbroath Abbey today? 
Absolutely. The property is in state ownership and is managed by Historic Environment Scotland and is open year-round. Excellent. Well, I'm sure that everyone will be flooding to Arbroath Abbey to see it after that. Um, Matthew, thank you very much. And if you'd like this podcast, um, please do rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Follow the project on Twitter. We're at the Twitter handle at Couture, C-O-T-R 2020, and visit our website online at www.cotr for communityofthealm.ac.uk. Thank you very much.